Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Core EM. We've got some great core content pearls from our conference this week. Now, our conference this month is supposed to be on cardiology, but this was a little bit of a mixed bag. We had a bunch of different talks. The first one was on how to build a great talk, and this is one that I gave to the residents. Now, I'm not going to go over all the pearls here because we actually recorded this for the Teaching Course podcast with Salim Razai. So I'm going to drop a link in the show notes to those podcasts so you can check them out. But I think giving a great talk is really a big part of emergency medicine, a big part of medicine in general. So we need to know how to do it well. I think these are some tips that are going to help you to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've all encountered in putting talks together. A big part of our conference this week was a flipped classroom small group workshop on chest pain. Basically, the residents broke themselves down into groups of three or four and discussed a number of questions posed to them on some fictitious cases. A lot of great pearls came out of this. Let's start with the history and physical examination of patients with chest pain. Deciding whether chest pain is ACS or not can be difficult. We all know that. We keyed in on a couple of historical features that we found were critically important. The first was an exertional component to the pain. Number two, radiation anywhere, though we noted that radiation to the right arm is a bit more specific for ACS. Associated vomiting with the chest pain, not just nausea. And then number four, associated diaphoresis. All of these signs are specific, but not necessarily sensitive. Meaning if you see one of these signs, well, I'm gonna be really worried about ACS. But if they don't have these signs, we haven't ruled out the disease. Older patients, those with multiple comorbid conditions, especially diabetes, and women will often present with different atypical symptoms. One pearl I've learned multiple times by getting it wrong is that in older patients, especially older women, simple increased fatigue may be the only symptom of ACS. We also discussed a number of alternative diagnoses that you have to think about when you're thinking about chest pain and ACS, including pulmonary embolism and aortic dissection. And you can go back and check out our blog post from earlier in July on the chief complaint of chest pain, which was written by one of our PGY3 residents, Farzan Navi. It goes through an approach to chest pain in the ED. I think it's really well put together, has some nice flow diagrams. We'll also have more on aortic dissection in a couple of weeks on the podcast. One of our PGY2 residents is going to give a talk on that topic. The initial approach to chest pain in those whom you suspect ACS is relatively straightforward. We're going to put in an IV and send off blood work, especially a troponin. We're going to give them supplemental oxygen, but only if their oxygen saturation is less than 93 to 95%. Otherwise, supplemental oxygen isn't necessary and may even be harmful. We're going to put them on a monitor, and of course, we're going to get an EKG. Unless they have true aspirin allergy, and aspirin should be given to almost all patients in whom you suspect ACS. It's one of the few medications where there's really minimal debate about the benefit. If the EKG reveals a STEMI, go ahead and activate your cath lab or transfer the patient out. We should also consider thrombolytics if we don't have the ability to get to a cath lab, but most of us are going to be able to get the patient to cardiac catheterization relatively quickly. Regardless of whether you see a STEMI or not on the ECG, we should consider giving nitroglycerin to the patient to relieve pain. Sublingual nitro is a relatively safe medication with a very short half-life. We're talking about a couple of minutes. There are two big things to look out for before you give nitroglycerin. 
Number one, if the patient's hypotensive, nitroglycerin is likely to worsen this because it causes vasodilation. Number two, if the patient has signs of an inferior MI on their EKG, so this is going to be ST elevations in 2, 3, and AVF, you have to use nitroglycerin very carefully. Patients with an inferior STEMI can also have concomitant RV infarct. We can find that by doing a right-sided EKG, mainly looking at right-sided lead number four. If we give those patients nitro, they're going to bottom out their blood pressure because they're a little bit preload dependent. Now, if you make the mistake, and some of our faculty talked about times in the past where this mistake had been made, you can give them a little bit of a fluid bolus, and that may reverse the hypotension. Honestly, what usually happens is the nitro goes away and the blood pressure comes up. What would be better is to just not give the nitro or to give it in smaller doses. So instead of giving the 400 micrograms of nitroglycerin sublingual, as we usually do for chest pain, maybe do it IV and just give smaller doses of nitro and titrate to effect while watching the blood pressure closely. When I started residency, heparin and IV beta blockers were pretty standard treatment in any patient with possible ACS, but I think this has changed a bit over the last 10 years. The benefit of beta blockers is that they prevent the development of ventricular dysrhythmias, but it appears that this benefit is seen as long as they're given within 24 hours, and it can be given orally instead of intravenously. So this has sort of taken it out of the usual repertoire in the emergency department. We should specifically exercise caution in giving IV beta blockers in patients with ST elevation MI as they may go into cardiogenic shock, although there is some emerging literature to show that this isn't quite the problem that we once perceived it was. What about adding heparin to your antiplatelet regimen? Heparin has a relatively narrow therapeutic window, and so it shouldn't be given to all patients with suspected ACS. Our group felt that heparin plays an important role in patients with significant ACS risk, dynamic EKG changes, or in patients with a significant troponin elevation who we suspect ACS. So those are the patients I'm really gonna look at. This also brings up an important point of getting repeat EKGs. The only thing better than an EKG is another EKG and an old EKG to compare it to. So anytime the patient's pain changes, whether that's an increase in pain or a decrease in pain, we should be getting repeat EKGs to see if there's any difference in the patient's tracing. From here, we touched on our final point, which was a bit about risk stratification in the low-risk chest pain patient. Over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of publications looking at this group. A lot of those in the room were keen on the heart score. There's been a lot about the heart score and the heart pathway over the last couple of months, and I'm going to drop some links from Rebel EM as well as a podcast that Amal Matu did via EMcast because I don't think we can go through everything about the heart score here. The heart score is relatively simple, relying on just five components. It was derived on emergency department patients, and it's been validated in the ED as well. The heart pathway, which incorporates a low heart score, less than three, along with serial negative troponins at time zero and time equals three hours, identified a group of patients who could safely be discharged from the ED without the need for additional testing, like a stress test. We know that in low-risk chest pain patients, stress tests have a very minimal yield, finding more false positives than false negatives. The rate of adverse outcomes defined as MI, death, or a need for urgent revascularization at 30 days in the heart pathway article was 0%. Bottom line here is that the heart pathway represents a strategy for taking low-risk chest pain patients and making them uber low-risk for ACS and thus safe for early discharge home. 
In addition to the chest pain workshop, we also had a couple of shorter segments during the conference. One was from one of our PGY4 residents, Jennifer Shanquan. She did a journal update on a JAMA article from this year looking at the use of short-course oral prednisone in the treatment of patients presenting with acute sciatic pain and a known herniated disc. This study by Goldberg was a randomized control trial comparing steroids versus placebo. Steroids were given for 15 days, so not your typical short course as we think of it in the ED. And they found a small, really a tiny difference in functional outcomes at three weeks and no change in pain. The steroid group had a high rate of side effects as well. Overall, it doesn't seem like this is a great intervention, but from my experience, it's a common one in the ED. Perhaps we need to rethink about that based on this paper. Well, that's all for Core EM this week. Next week, we'll be bringing you more pearls from our conference. We're going to be highlighting some PEDS cardiology, some stuff on pericardial effusions, and we're going to have a grand rounds talk from Sergey Motov on pain management. So we'll try to bring that in its full content to the podcast. Come on over and check out Core EM at our site, coreem.net. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. See you all next week on Core EM.